morning, everybody. The Bible reading today is from Hebrews chapter 3, starting at the beginning and going into chapter 4. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken to God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you will have will be found to have fallen short of it. For we have also had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again, set a certain day, calling it today. 
This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Well, thank you, Caroline, and welcome, everyone, the youth heading out. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living. Through it, you you speak to us now. Thank you it's active. It works on our lives. Thank you that it's sharp and it cuts us with surgical precision to do the work on our souls that you need. Father, we all have a capacity to harden our hearts and maybe some of them are hard at the moment, but we pray that for the next little while, uh, you'd help us to have those soft hearts that please you, to listen and to hear you and help me to be clear in Jesus' name, amen. So Hebrews chapter three, open your devices or your leaflet there or your Bibles. Okay, what are you like at rest? What do you like at rest? Um, I don't mean just collapsing on a lounge to binge on Netflix at the end of a day. I mean really resting, really resting. What do you like at that? So that when you wake up, you can get back to work, you've got a zing in your step, you're able to face life, you're refreshed and you're ready to go. For me, I have to say, look, this is a growth area. (laughs) I'm not great at it. Um, Though I long for rest, I strive for rest, but the reality is I struggle. I struggle to rest. Rest is elusive. Which is weird because we of all people, we should be experts at rest. We're Bible people. The idea of rest comes from the Bible. Genesis chapter two, verses one to four, after God had spent six days creating the world in Genesis one, on the seventh day in chapter two, God rested. That seventh day being a day of rest is where we get the whole idea in our culture of taking a day off a week. It's a biblical idea. It's where we see that rest and work aren't enemies of each other, they are complements. We work to rest, we rest to work. But the fact that the seventh day of rest comes after God's work also is where we get the idea that rest is where everything's heading. This is an eternal goal, our ultimate goal. You'd think, therefore, that us being Bible people, we'd be experts at rest. And also you'd think this because in the history of the world, 
we have more free time than our forebears did. Did you know this? You may not think this, but it's true. John Dixon did a podcast on the topic of rest and he cited a study in which he concluded that of all the nations which industrialized early, and that includes Australia, working hours have actually decreased dramatically over the last 150 years. So that people in 1870, they worked as many hours between January and July as we do in a whole year. Right? So if we worked at their rate for seven months, imagine being able to have the, the remaining five months off. <laughs> okay. um, and you'd still do the same amount of work that you currently do within a year. Most of us, therefore, have more time for creativity and leisure than our people, uh, people have beforehand. And yet, though we strive for rest, the reality is most of us struggle don't we? We struggle to find it. Um, here's a sobering thing that I heard. The word workaholic first appeared in 1971 in a study in reference to the working patterns of clergy. Ooh! Mainly because it was difficult for them, or people who have a vocation, to be off job. But today, of course, it's not just clergy who feel like we're always on regarding work, our smartphones and email and the working from home during COVID lockdown, etc., 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 does this. And for those of us who feel always on at work, this study, John Dixon cites, says more than two-thirds say that they've experienced burnout, and more than half say that they've experienced burnout more than once. Rest is elusive. We strive for it but we struggle to find it. And we think, how can this be? You know, we are South Australians. Ours was the last state in Australia to introduce Sunday trading. Now, stick up your hand if you can still remember when the community took a day off. Okay, stick up your hand if you can't. Quite a lot, right? <laughs> okay, but some of us can. Taking one day off in seven is a biblical idea. It was meant to be a holy day, a holiday. That's where the word comes from. A chance to recreate. That's where recreation comes from. And in the Bible, this pattern of taking one day off in seven as something embedded into the rhythm of our lives wasn't just meant to be an end in itself, but in fact a pointer to something greater, something ultimate, to enjoying an even better rest, an eternal rest that we were made for, a rest with Christ himself. That's what Hebrews chapters three and four are all about. The twist is that there's a connection between resting now properly as God intended and making it into our eternal rest with Jesus. Those things aren't disconnected. How are they connected? What's the nature of the connection? We are going to see. But these chapters are gonna tell us three things we need to do and then at the end, four quick helps as to how to do them so as to make sure we make it into that better rest. The first thing is we're told immediately, straight up, chapter three, verse one, is to fix our thoughts on Jesus, greater than Moses and he is always faithful. This is where we need to start when we think about this. The topic is how do we get to our heavenly rest, realizing that not everyone does. Well, 
The rest of the passage is going to really focus on things that we need to do, but the first thing, the place to start, is to fix our thoughts on Jesus and what he has done. That's where we do need to start. Last week we heard that he's the pioneer of our salvation, our trailblazing hero. He not only wins us salvation, but he forges a way for us to follow him. Fix your thoughts on Jesus who secures your salvation and opens up the way for you to follow. This says, fix your thoughts on Jesus, our apostle. He's the one who reveals God like no one else can. He is God's majestic son. Fix your thoughts on Jesus who speaks God into your life. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the high priest of our confession. And we remember from last week, as high priest, he's offered himself on the cross. He's made full atonement for us. What a relief, okay? And not only that, but he is our high priest in heaven now. He lives in heaven. He's still our high priest. He is representing us to the Father. He is providing help to those who call on him uh, in times of need. He's, he's providing grace whenever we need it. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's likely that none of the original recipients of this letter called to the Hebrews, <laughs> Jewish Christians, actually ever met Jesus in person, well, like us they were. But chances are that because they were Jewish, the person that they most readily identified as their natural figurehead and leader was Moses. He was, you know, the one that they would have been talked about Talk, well, that was talked about in their household since they grew up. He was a, I mean, Moses is a great guy. Leader of ancient Israel, the one, of course, who led them out of slavery in Egypt, and then who traveled with them for 40 years of wandering in the desert wilderness. And you read the accounts, he was an exceptionally godly man. And there's only one or two moments in his life which deviate from that, but Essentially, he was a man faithful to God right throughout his life. You could do a lot worse than follow Moses. He's a wonderful guy. And the writer wants to say, Moses, great though he was, well, don't give up on Jesus because Jesus is actually greater than even he. Now, of course, Moses is worthy of great honor. He's faithful as a servant in God's house, but Jesus, he's worthy of greater honor. He is faithful as the son who will inherit all of God's house. He's the one, in fact, who builds God's house. And guess what, says the writer, and here's our first sort of mental trip, he says, and we are that house. We are God's living house that he is building, and it's full of people, and Jesus is over us, and he is faithful to God, just as Moses was, but even more so, and therefore, with Moses, but greater Jesus as our the people, well, Jesus who's over us, and they're our examples. The idea is for us also to be faithful to God just as they have been. Jesus was ever faithful to God. He won us a place with God. He's opened up the way for us to follow him in being faithful. And when we fail, praise God, he, our high priest, he's won us salvation. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. He is our confidence. Now, we need to bear that in mind because not everyone who formally calls themselves one of God's children, a Christian, keeps going, do they? We all know people who've begun but who have given up. And you know, 
you can get caught up thinking about them. And then that can breed some insecurity and fear and you can wonder, well, will that be me? Um, and then you can read, for example, the parable of the soils of the sower in, Matthew, in Mark 4. Will I be like the rocky soil or the shallow soil? Uh, will I wither because I have no root when trouble or persecution comes? Will I be like the one who ends up getting my life choked out by the weeds, by the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth? And that can shake us. And then we can come to a verse like Hebrews 3 verse 6, have a look there. We can look at the if statement. We are his house if we hold firmly. And we can think, well, it's all up to me. And I'm not sure that I really can hold on that firmly. But that's why the, the writer says, first of all, you've got to fix your eyes on Jesus. Can't everything he's done for you. Don't, it's not about you, it's about him. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. If you look at what verse six actually says, it actually speaks of our confidence that we have. It's not fear, it's confidence. And it also talks about our hope. And it doesn't mean hope as in wishful thinking, but a solid hope in which we glory. In other words, you could read verse six wrongly with doubt. You know, we are his house if we hold firmly to our confidence bit grim, or you could read it confidently as it's meant to be read, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory, right? That's how we're meant to read it. Fixing our thoughts on Jesus enables us to hear God's words positively as a helpful exhortation. So when it comes to us handling the stories of God's people of old failing and falling, we're on to our second point, we can confidently take heed of the Holy Spirit's exhortation. This is the second thing we need to do. Confidently take heed of the Holy Spirit's exhortation in Psalm 95. You'll see in Hebrews 3, if you've got it open, in verses 7 to 11, there is a quote from Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 itself tells the earlier story of that generation of Israelites who after God wonderfully, miraculously rescued them from slavery in Egypt they ended up perishing in the desert wilderness without ever failing to reach their rest in the promised land of Canaan. Only their children would go on to enter. It was an absolute disaster. They wandered for 40 years, not because it takes 40 years to get from Egypt there. It takes three months of walking, not 40 years. They walked for 40 years as a punishment because they were banned from entering, why? Because they hardened their hearts against God. They didn't trust that God would help them take the land. God was therefore angry with that generation and forbade them entering the land, and which meant they wandered in the desert till they died. Now, maybe you listen to that and you think, oh, well, bad luck for them. But it won't happen to us because we have the spirit, right? We're different. Um, actually, though, it's the Holy Spirit who's speaking to us through this warning. It's he who's giving us this warning, verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, we might be born after Jesus and we have the Holy Spirit, but he wants us to listen to this. So should we be afraid? We could come to a verse like verse 14, 
We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. We could come to a verse like that and think that if clause sounds like you can't be sure. You know, I might be sticking with Jesus today, but who's to say I'm not going to falter later on? I just want to help you by being technical for just a moment, and please excuse me. That phrase, we have come to share in Christ, is in the perfect tense, if that means anything to you. (laughs) What that means is, you have already come to share in Christ, you already share in Christ now, and you will already share in Christ in the future. It's perfect. It's really good. And that if clause, the bit after the if, is saying, if you're someone who shares in Christ, past, present, and yes, future, then of course this is what you'll do. You'll hold on to your original conviction firmly until the very end. So because this is who you are, and because that's what you'll do, the point is, do it, (laughs) okay? Those who do so will confidently take heed of what the Holy Spirit is saying to them in the warning from Psalm 95, the example of the Israelites perishing in the wilderness. They're not gonna be the ones who perish, they're gonna be the ones who listen to the Holy Spirit speaking to them. They're the ones who are going to have soft hearts, who'll keep listening to God and keep taking his words seriously into their lives. Is that you? Is that you? Did you come to church today to listen to God? To what God's speaking to you? Or did you come to church to be entertained or just just because this is what you always do on a Sunday? We do need to keep checking ourselves, don't we? We need to take heed of what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. We need to listen to him when he says, do not harden your hearts against God. And we need to realize that that is said to us precisely because it's something that's not only theoretically possible, it's actually been done in the past. And that's why this example is given. We need to hear the Spirit exhorting us, and we need to do it together. Verse 12, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. You need to be with one another to be able to do that. If you're watching online, this might be a little rebuke for you, uh, because some of you can make it in, but you're not. You need to actually be here. Sorry. It says, now everyone else is feeling smug. Don't feel smug, right? It says, encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. We're missing out on your encouragement, see? So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's why we need to meet in person with each other. And then when we do so, we need to be real with each other. You know, at home alone, we can, we can think that we're doing okay, But the problem is we can actually be blind to the sin in our lives which we think isn't there, but which other people can see when we meet with them. (laughs) You know, there have been times in my life when a caring brother or sister has brought to my attention in a spirit of love things which, because of my pride or ignorance, I just haven't seen. I just didn't know was there. But then when it's pointed out with gentleness and and with concern and love, and then when I go home and eat some humble pie and think about it, actually I've seen that I really do need to change. We need each other, you know. 
And the thing about being deceived about sin in our life is we don't see it because we're deceived. (laughs) And we need the humility to listen to one another who speak the truth in love with Bible open and taking care to take out of their own eye that plank first before they remove the speck in our own eye. You see, the danger of not listening, it's just not worth it. Verses 14 to 19 tell us we need to take the warning seriously. You know, who were those who heard heard and rebelled? Now, he's asking rhetorical questions to get us thinking and not to sort of just discount that previous example and write it off as just something irrelevant in history. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? He's saying that they had an experience of salvation, directly, personally. They knew God's grace in their life. But that doesn't make you bulletproof from temptation. It doesn't give you a permanently soft heart towards God. Okay? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Verse 17. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? You know, in the letter of 1 John, he says, there are some sins which lead to death. Not all sin does, but there are some. And I thought... Isn't the punishment for all sin death? He's saying, operationally in our lives, there are some sins which, if you persist in, will just cut you off from God. What is that? Jesus speaks about it, doesn't he? Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What is that? It's the thought that we know better, that we do not need to hear God's voice, that we can persist in our own independent patterns, it's that sneering condescension to any possible word of correction, that refusal to to heed God's word of correction or warning or reproof in our lives. If you don't repent and, and practice that daily, it will lead to us perishing. Verse 18, and to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to, to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. You know, um, some of us still in our heads might be struggling to work out how can we take a warning seriously but also be confident of our salvation? How do we do those two things? An illustration. When my kids were little, Narelle and I took them to the Blue Mountains um, west of Sydney to Katoomba, to Echo Point, and probably you've been there. Echo Point, which looks out over the Jamison Valley, the second largest canyon in the world, second only to the Grand Canyon. You can go on a clifftop walk from Echo Point to the Three Sisters, a rock formation, and the track goes very close to the cliff edge. So my girls were prone to running off and exploring, as kids will do, and I just had a serious word with them. I said, girls, you need to walk on the path. You must not go off the path. If you go off the path, you could easily fall, and let me tell you, if you fall, you will die. Was the warning true? Yes. Narelle, in fact, knows of a woman who did that on her honeymoon. Her boss's cousin's wife hopped over the fence pretending to slip and then did, fell to her death. Did the girls walk on the path thinking that they would perish? No. Were they confident 
that I would not let them perish. Yes. But part of their confidence was the fact that I had warned them so seriously. Got it? What they did, and this is the third thing we must do, what they did and what the Israelites failed to do, what we must do is they combined their fear with faith. Chapter four, verse one, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful, literally, let us be afraid that none of you will have been found to have fallen short of it. Because even if we've begun with Christ, we still haven't entered that great eternal rest God has promised with us in Christ, not yet. Verse one, the promise of entering God's rest still stands, or verse six, it still remains for some to enter that rest, that's us. And in a weird parallel, we're in a similar situation to the Israelites in the wilderness when you think about it. I mean, think about what it was like for them. They could look back and they could see what God had done for them. The salvation that God had brought about in their life. They had a personal experience of it. And if you've come to Christ and have faith in him and know God's grace, that's true for you as well. But entering the promised land was still something to come they still needed to get there. And they would have, but they didn't, why not? Did they not have God's word? No, they had it, they like us had God's word. That, verse two, they, we've also had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. So what was lacking? Faith. Now, apparently I scored points a few months back when I quoted Beyonce. Well, as George Michael, who is not the best Bible exegete, but on this matter, he is spot on. As George Michael sang, you've got to have faith. That's what was wrong with the Israelites. They didn't trust God or his word about what he would do for them. Verse two, the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now, just if you're out there and you're thinking, but I don't have faith. I just want to say faith is not magical. It's a decision to put your trust in a spoken message, all right? It's a decision to come to God's words as his word to you and to believe that he is speaking to you words which if you take to heart will save you. Words which he's still speaking to us today. In fact, right now he's speaking to us. You may have noticed how that word today keeps popping up in this passage and how Psalm 95 keeps on being quoted numerous times. I wanna draw a timeline in front of you. Okay, at this end you have God's words to the Israelites in the time of Moses, that he would be with them to enter the promised land to take possession of it. This is God speaking his word to the people of Moses in Moses' time in their day. They heard it, but they didn't believe it. Then move ahead 300 years to when King David pens Psalm 95 to the Israelites in his day, about 1000 BC. Verse seven, God set a certain day calling it today when a long time later he spoke through David as in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts. So God speaks the same word to his people in the time of David. Fast forward now a thousand years to the time that this letter to the Hebrews was written. God spoke through the same passage to his people in that day. Chapter three, verse seven, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Fast forward now 2,000 years to 2022 when God is speaking to us 
through the same word, chapter four, verse three. Now we who have believed entered at that rest just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Verse 11, therefore let us make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. This has been and this will be beyond us God's word to his people right throughout the ages as long as it is called today. So let me ask you the question, is today called today? Yes, I just called it that, which means God is still speaking to his people live today through that same word. Psalm 95 isn't just God's word to a previous generation only, it is God's word to our generation right now. Okay, let's pull the threads together. Rest is something that God has made us for. It's something he's planned for us and, he's, and bringing us into it is the reason he sent Jesus. What must we do? Fix our thoughts on Jesus. Confidently listen to the Holy Spirit's exhortation. Combine fear with faith. But he doesn't just leave us there. In the passage, there are four aids that he gives us. And with these, I finish and it'll be very quick. The first is one another. We need to meet with one another. We need to meet with brothers and sisters in Christ who are also on the journey with us. We need to meet with one another in the winter. We need to meet with one another in the summer. I could keep going. We need to meet with one another who, with whom we can be encouraged and encourage them. Mutual encouragement. People who, if it so happened that some of us had a sinful, unbelieving heart that were turning away from the living God, people who would have the love and maturity and grace to point it out and call us to repent and would even warn us kindly, lest we in our heart keep our hearts hard and fail to enter the rest that he's planned for us. We need one another. What it's saying is we cannot afford the option of just not meeting. We just can't do it. We are designed to meet with one another. That's how God keeps us on track, right? Secondly, the second aid is a weekly day off to focus on God. After talking about rest and entering God's rest and the eternal rest that God's taken us towards, in chapter four, verse nine, the writer then says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, I have checked. This word isn't just a synonym for rest. It's a particular word which, beyond the Bible, means Sabbath observance. There remains a Sabbath observance, so one day off in seven for the people of God. God is gifting us, he's advocating in the rhythm of our lives that we take off one day in seven to rest. Now, I want to say this is not a legalistic requirement and we would be wrong to come down like a ton of bricks on anyone who violates any little bit of it. Jesus told us in Mark chapter two, and the references are on your outline, that the Sabbath is made for us, not us for the Sabbath. Okay, so it's, not a, it's a gift to us. We're not to be legalistically under it. Paul is clear that there is flexibility on the day in Romans chapter 14. But you have to be settled in the matter in your own mind. And he's extra clear in Colossians 2 that we are not to let people judge us on the issue. So we are not to be legalistic about it. The Sabbath is a gift given 
for our good. And it's there not to just use the time to dumb out on Netflix, but to focus on God. That's why the fourth commandment was given, the Sabbath commandment, so that people could reflect on God creating them and also God redeeming and saving them and then where he was taking them. Now, therefore, let me ask you, do you take off one day in seven, particularly to allow yourself to be fed by God? Um, I know it's tricky, you know, some of you, I'm looking, you've got families with little ones, they are on constant demand, right? <laughs> and then of course, you know, we're in a different working environment now where some of us are never off. The challenge will be in our lives to try and carve out time where we can allow ourselves to be fed by God and reflect with thanksgiving with him. Okay, it is God's gift to us and we, it's there for us to use. We could help each other by trying to talk with one another about our particular challenges there and how this might work in our lives. The third aid, aid is the Holy Spirit himself. The reason why God's word is relevant to each generation of his people is that the Holy Spirit not only inspired the words originally, but he is active and works through them. He continues to speak to each new generation of God's people through them. And you'll know the experience. You'll have opened your Bible at one point or come to church to hear a talk. You haven't necessarily expected much, but then something leaps out of the page or you know, from the front into your life. God's word takes hold of you. It sort of penetrates. You feel like the message was written just for you. It hits you like, a, you know, like you've got a target painted on you and your life's changed. The Holy Spirit speaks through his words. He takes his inspired words and he illuminates your mind and he takes them and opens them and opens your heart and drives them home. What we need to do is open ourselves to listen. Okay, so the third aid is the Holy Spirit himself. The fourth aid is powerful because of the Holy Spirit that the, and this is the word of God and it's with this that the passage closes and it's with this that I close and I'll just read it out. The word of God, brothers and sisters, it is alive and it is active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword and it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the hearts and that's a good thing. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. The sin that we um, are blind to it opens us. We can think we're traveling okay. You open the Bible. Man, it keeps you honest. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It is the fourth great aid. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, thank you for this word of exhortation, really a word of warning, um, but a word of also encouragement, encouraging us to fix our eyes on Jesus, encouraging us to take heed of the Holy Spirit's warnings. And um, yeah, thank you for the aids there as well. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would make use of them. Um, help us to keep meeting. Help us to listen to one another. Help us to heed the Holy Spirit. Help us to open your word.
And we pray this so that none of us would perish, but we'd all live out that confidence and hope to the very end that you've given us in Jesus. Amen.